So I don't know about you guys, but my Thanksgiving was pretty awesome. Every single one of my family members got along well. Everyone said please and thank you at the table. No one made fun of anyone else, not even a little bit. And my kids, I'm not really sure how, but they were perfect little angels. They didn't complain about any of the food. They actually tried a little bit of everything. And they didn't get on each other's nerves. They didn't get on our nerves. And like rather than running around and causing chaos, they just sat and played quietly with their cousins. The food was marvelous, of course. Everything was moist, flavorful. Nothing was burnt or dry. We had the perfect amount of everything. And then there were the football games, totally entertaining. Every team that I wanted to won. And every player that was on my fantasy team that played on Thanksgiving had an incredible game. And if you haven't figured it out already, and my wife probably figured it out after like the very first sentence, more than half of what I'm sharing is a total lie right now. All right? Now, my actual Thanksgiving uh, was not perfect. By uh, 8 a.m. on Thanksgiving morning, I'm pretty sure I had screamed at both of my children. And both of them had had a timeout already by 8 o'clock in the morning. And uh, I hadn't been up for that long at that point. Uh, there was miscommunication about what time people were supposed to arrive. We were hosting at our house. And so everybody started pouring in an hour early, and I was still pretty gross, still like in my sweatpants and undershirt, and uh, had not even finished cooking everything that we were responsible to provide. And my favorite foible of the day came when I was making cookies, and uh, the recipe did not say to soften the butter. I guess it thought I would have thought of that on my own. I didn't think of that on my own. And so as I'm mixing everything together, most of the ingredients are in there. I'm like, huh, something doesn't seem right. I think I was supposed to soften the butter. So uh, the remedy to that, basically, was to borrow my wife's blow dryer. And uh, in my one hand, I had the blow dryer. Here's the metal bowl. And, you know, just find all the butter chunks, soften them up. Eventually, we got the consistency just right. And those cookies turned out delicious, believe it or not. Chocolate cookies with peanut butter chips and milk chocolate chips in them. Just a little bit extra work than I had planned on. Uh, one of our uh, mottos when uh, Sue Schreiner used to lead worship arts, she just uh, kept having us repeat, we are flexible, intelligent people. And so I just tried to be a flexible, intelligent person and roll with everything that happened on Thanksgiving Day. But while my Thanksgiving was not perfect, uh, it did offer a great chance to slow down and to ponder and to express my gratitude to God. You know, I think uh, Thanksgiving is kind of a microcosm of our life, right? There's these moments of greatness, these moments of sheer bliss and joy where everything works out the way that you want it to, but then there's also lots of moments of challenge. There's circumstances that are hard. There's times where we get tough news or times where something happens that rattles us to our core and we just really don't know how to process it at all. Life has lots, lots of mountaintop moments, but if we're honest, life also has lots of valleys, doesn't it? And I think that for many of us, as we get to this time of year where we're challenged to think about what we're grateful for, but yet at the same time we're walking through the valleys of life, we don't really know what to do with that. Like It feels like everyone is saying we're supposed to be grateful, so I feel like I ought to be grateful but I'm not quite sure how to be grateful because the circumstances in my life don't really feel great right now. And at times that challenge extends even beyond just not knowing how to feel grateful. At times our circumstances make us question God. Like, God, if I'm supposed to believe that you're a good God, 
And shouldn't my life be easier? Like, shouldn't a good God provide us with good circumstances? And when we start thinking like that, we start to wonder, not only is God really good, but is God really present? Does God really care? When circumstances are bad, and yet we're told that we have a good God, things just don't seem like they match up, and we don't really know what to do with that. And so sometimes, rather than trying to figure that out and doing the hard work, we just have a tendency to cut ties with God altogether. We make ourselves believe that either A, God can't hear us, or B, God can hear us, but he doesn't care. Like, God doesn't really want to hear about the tough stuff in our lives that we're walking through. It's like God is saying, CBB, like, can't be bothered, right? Now, in my household growing up, there was not a lot of emotion expressed. Both of my parents are thinkers, naturally, much more than they are feelers. And so when negative emotion was expressed, it kind of felt a little bit out of order. It felt a little bit unhealthy, uh, typically because we would bottle it up until it, like, needed to explode, right? And because we are such functional people as well, sharing negative emotions just kind of felt unproductive. Like, what is sharing negative feelings about the circumstance really going to change about the circumstance? Nothing, right? So let's just not share them. Well, I think unknowingly, I translated that not sharing emotions thing to my relationship with God as well. And I believed falsely that God doesn't really want to hear our cries or our complaints, that he doesn't want to hear my negative emotions about things that I'm struggling with. And so instead, I believed that God would just say, just suck it up, just polish yourself up, put on a smile, and put your best foot forward. What we tend to think is that gratitude and sorrow cannot go hand in hand. That God doesn't want to hear both praise and lament from us. And so that leaves us thinking that unless our circumstances are going well, that we can't authentically praise God. But the truth, and this is the first point in your outline today, the truth is that our lament is every bit as much of evidence of our love for God as our praise. Let me say that again. Our lament is every bit as much of evidence as our love for God as is our praise. See, God is not just a fair-weather friend. God is like any good friend. Good friends don't just want to hear the pretty, right? They want to hear the pretty ugly, the pretty tough, the pretty bad. I mean, if you hung out with someone and you considered them your best friend, Wouldn't you want them to paint a picture of their life that's not just one of roses and daisies all the time, right? If they did that, you'd probably feel like, well, they really don't love me. They really don't trust me because they're not telling me what's really going on. No, what makes you feel loved and trusted is when they share their hearts, when they're honest, and when they're vulnerable with you. And when your friend shares something that they're struggling with, do you judge them based on their struggle? Of course not, right? You love them altruistically, and so you don't judge them. Instead, you feel compassion for them. And so if we can believe the best about our friends and what they will think about us or how they will care for us or love us in our challenging circumstances, then the question is, why do we think any differently about God? After all, Jesus actually called us his friend, John 15, 15, he said, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. 
Jesus, God's son, he calls us his friends, and he shared with us what God's plan or what God's business was. He shared for us how he was feeling, how he was processing the circumstances that he was walking through in his word. And so conversely, he wants us to share what's going on in our lives as well. And think about it, if anyone can handle our honesty, it's God, right? Nothing we could say could phase God. I mean, he's, he's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He already knows everything we're going through, and he knows everything we're feeling. But just like a good friend does for us, he wants to hear the story from us. And just as our best friends can look at our challenging circumstances with compassion, not judgment, so does God, but times a million. You know, in Scripture, we see tons of examples of people being honest, even at times ugly honest with God, expressing really hard things to God about how they're feeling in tough circumstances. And yet, despite those circumstances, we see so many examples of people in the middle of their lamenting who are also able to express gratitude and praise to God. How is that? Why is that? It's because, and this is our big idea for the day, it's because being grateful is not based on having great circumstances, but on having a relationship with a great God. Being grateful is not based on having great circumstances, but it's based on having a relationship with a great God. Psalm 42 is a great example of one such lament. A lament is essentially a complaint. That's what that means. And the Psalms are full of laments. There's actually seven chapters in Psalms that are officially labeled as lament psalms, and many Bible scholars actually prefer to call them complaint psalms because the word lament seems a little bit more passive, while the tone of these lament psalms tends to be a little bit more vociferous, a little more active. Now, Psalm 42 actually isn't labeled as one of those lament psalms, but I think as we walk down through it today, you'll definitely see that it is con- definitely could be considered as a lament. Set the stage a little bit for Psalm 42. What do we know about Psalm 42? Well, most likely, uh, it's probable that David, we know David, David and Goliath, King David, right? David who had the affair with Bathsheba, that David, that David is the subject of this psalm, and, and the, the instance is when David is running away from Absalom. Absalom was one of David's sons who had kind of gathered a bunch of people with him and were rebelling against David. And while David was struggling with doubt and fear, while he was walking through and, and lamenting about some tough circumstances, We'll see here that he is still able to praise God. He's still able to express gratitude. And so we're going to read the whole of Psalm 42, and then we're going to come back and work our way through it. So Psalm 42 says this. It says, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the Mighty One with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast 
within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Miser. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Now, the first thing I notice as I read through that psalm is that David is just like us. <laughs> and when he's working through challenges, when he's experiencing sorrow, that he is all over the place, right? In his sorrow and his grief. He's sad, but yet in other moments it appears as he's hopeful. He seems untrusting and fearful, and then in other moments he appears as if he is trusting in God. Well, let's dig into some of these verses because I think there's lots of really good stuff that we can learn here from how David expresses his pain, but then also where he ends up. So we'll start in verses 1 and 2, which say again, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? I love how these verses speak to desire, right? We've just come out of this sacred search series where we talked about the importance of desire as it relates to us being able to grow in our relationship with God. Now, verse 1 here talks about deer panting for streams of water. And what this writer calls a deer is most likely more like a gazelle. See, the writer had this picture that a lot of the ancient writers did of gazelles in great number gathered around the water brooks in the great deserts of the time, literally so thirsty, so subdued by their thirst from this long, dry journey that they had been on through the desert that you could almost literally walk amongst their midst. You could get up really close to the whole flock before they even noticed that you were there and then fled and took off. Their desire, their thirst was so prominent, so in focus, that giving energy or attention to anything else took a back seat. And while deer or gazelles thirsted for water in the desert to that extent, David is saying here that he has great thirst for God, to be in the presence of God. And that might beg the question, well, like, why can't David be in the presence of God? Like, what's the deal here? Well, don't forget, Jesus had not yet come onto the scene, and so God's presence was only found in the temple, in the sanctuary. And so here, David is on the run. He's banished from his temple. Who knows how long it's been since he had had an opportunity to worship in the temple, and so he's crying out, when can I go and meet with God? When can I be in his presence again? I need to be in God's presence like the deer need water after a long and dry journey. He moves on to verse 3. He says, My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, Where is your God? Another translation of this verse actually says, My tears have been my meat day and night. It's this very poetic language. Like, does it mean that literally that because David was in such sorrow that, that all he could eat were the tears that were streaming down his cheeks and into his mouth, that he, he couldn't even eat food, he had no appetite? 
Or does it mean instead that as he was eating, say as he was eating a piece of meat that he had killed for dinner, that his tears were falling down upon the meat, almost seasoning it through the salt in his tears? Now maybe you've had seasons like this, seasons where your sorrow was so great that you couldn't even eat because you were crying so much. And in some ways, even that in and of itself is a blessing. I know at least for me, when I'm going through something challenging, when I'm feeling sorrow or grief, when I'm actually able to cry, (laughs) crying can be incredibly healing. And maybe it's that same way for you. In one of the commentaries that I looked at this week about this passage, the author said, there is a dry grief far more terrible than showery sorrows. And I would tend to agree with him. The grief where you can't cry is the grief that hurts even more. But whatever David meant in this expression of his tears were his food, it is clear that David is in constant grief mode. And to add to that, people who know him are now taunting him, essentially saying, well, hey, where is your God now? (laughs) David was this man who had been so vocal about God's goodness and God's greatness and proclaiming that to everyone that now some of these same people were taking David's words and twisting them, mocking him, almost finding delight in David's plight. Verse 4 says this, he says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the Mighty One with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Back in verse 2, David talked about uh, his longing to be in God's presence. And then here in verse 4, he remembers back to those good old days, the days where he was able to be in God's presence, where he felt like he was under God's protection. David remembers these incredible moments of worship among his church family as everybody was celebrating God together. And as we move towards verse 5, this remembrance encourages him to put his hope back in God again. J.P. Lange, who was a theologian from the 1800s, says about this verse that the blessedness of even the remembrance of divine worship is so great that it can save the soul from despair. The blessedness of even the remembrance of divine worship is so great that it can save the soul from despair. I love that quote and I love the truth behind it. I'm not sure how many of you were able to be here last Sunday night for our night of worship, but it was just truly one of those moments, those expressions of divine worship where God showed up. And even this week, as I've been faced with some challenges, remembering those moments of worship, those moments of divine worship, were enough for me to help me not get lost in my circumstances, but instead to remain present in the praise of God. Because again, being grateful is not based on having great circumstances, but on having a relationship with a great God. And so in verses 5 and 6, David reminds his soul to put its hope in God, to praise God, that despite the circumstances that he's walking through, that God is good and worthy of praise. And I think this is an important stopping point. This remembering thing is something that I want to sit with for a minute. Maybe you are in this season walking through a set of challenging circumstances and you're feeling discouraged. Like David, you're grieving and you're kind of wondering like, God, when am I going to feel your presence in my life again? And if that's where you're at, I want you to consider where you have seen God's faithfulness in the past. 
Where has God met you in a powerful way? Where was he a very prominent part of your story? Because the evidence of God's past work in your life is the best indicator of God's future work in your life. And so I want to give us just 20 seconds of silence to ponder this, to remember back to God's faithfulness in our lives. Maybe you even just want to write a word or a phrase on your outline to remind yourself of those moments. Let's just take 20 seconds of silence to remember. Well, conversely, maybe you're in a season right now where God is showing himself to you in a powerful way. He's teaching you something, he's bringing about good, and his presence feels strong in your life right now. And if that's where you're at, I want to encourage you to put a pin in this moment, to, to dog ear this page in the story of your life so that in the future, as you're walking through challenging circumstances and begin to doubt God's presence like we all have a tendency to do, you can come back to this moment, you can come back to this page and remember and be encouraged by it as an example of how God is faithful to you. Taking stock of those moments is what enables us to sing songs like Do It Again that we closed with at the night of worship last Sunday where we recognize, where we express to God, God, I'm in this tough spot. (laughs) I don't really see a way out of this. But I've seen you move. I've seen you move the mountains, and I believe that you can do it again. I've seen you. You made a way where there was no way. And I believe that I'll see you do it again. You know, in Scripture, when God worked in a mighty way in an individual's life or in the life of a community, Oftentimes you would see people create a physical representation of what God did for that same purpose, to remember God's faithfulness. Could be just a pile of stones, it could have been a monument that they built, or maybe an altar, but maybe you need to do the same thing in your life to remember God's faithfulness, to create a monument. That could just be words written in a journal. That could be putting a picture up on your wall that reminds you of something that God did. That could be prominently displaying a verse that contains a promise where God carried you through a season. But the importance of remembering God's faithfulness in your life cannot be overstated. All right, we're going to keep moving and verse 7 is next. And verse 7 is an interesting one, another like very poetic verse. He says, deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. And you probably read that and you're like, David, what in the heck are you talking about here? I have no clue what you're saying. Well, basically, he's working through another round of grief, another expression of lament. He's essentially saying that it seems as if everything is working against him. You picture a waterfall, right? And it starts with one deep body of water up at a higher spot, and then the water thunders down, sheets down, and crashes into another deep body of water. And so he's saying like a waterfall where deep water in one spot calls to or connects to deep water in another spot, it seems that one challenge in David's life is just crashing and meeting another challenge and that he can't find any relief. 
that wave after wave of challenge and grief and tough circumstances continue to pound, continue to sweep over him. And it's a really interesting word picture that I think is very accurate to our own experiences. It's that whole, when one thing goes wrong, everything goes wrong kind of thing, right? It's that line from the 12 pains of Christmas. Maybe you've heard it on the radio already this year about the Christmas light thing. Like, one goes out, they all go out, right? And it's so true. I'm pretty sure, like, that's a conspiracy by the Christmas light manufacturers to make sure that we always have to buy more Christmas lights. But it's those moments in life, right, where it seems like the whole universe is is working against you. And yet David says in verse 8, despite it all, God is still at work. Despite the circumstances, God still loves him. God is still provident. God still has control. He can still direct his love to work for the good. You know, just as it may seem like your circumstances are conspiring against you, you also need to know that at the same time, God's love is conspiring for you. God's love is conspiring for you. And our ability to to step back and, and to see how both of those forces can be used in our lives for good is critical to our journey with Jesus. See, it's, it's both things. It's both the challenge and God's promise that will help us to grow and become all that God wants us to be. In his book, The Life of the Beloved by Henry Nouwen, Nouwen shares that the great secret of the spiritual life, the life of the beloved sons and daughters of God, is that everything we live, be it gladness or sadness, joy or pain, health or illness, it can all be part of the journey towards the full realization of our humanity. Here, joy and sorrow are no longer each other's opposites but they have become two sides of the same desire to grow to the fullness of God. It's so insightful that God can and will use it all. And now and even goes so far as to say that that we ought to respond to brokenness by number one, befriending it, and number two, do what he says, putting it under the blessing. First of all, he tells us we should befriend brokenness, and to him we reply like, "Uh -uh, (laughs) uh-uh, I don't think so, right? Like, I don't befriend pain and brokenness. I run as far away from it as I can, as fast as humanly possible. But now and says, no, the first step to healing is not to take a step away from brokenness, from pain, but to take a step towards it. And I bet you found that to be true in your own life as well. What about then that putting it under the blessing business that he talks about? Basically, he says that we have a choice. We can see our pain, we can see our brokenness as under the curse, or we can see it as under the blessing. And this is really good stuff, so instead of paraphrasing, I want to read you this section of the book where he talks about this. He says, When we keep listening attentively to the voice calling us the Beloved, It becomes possible to live our brokenness not as a confirmation of our fear that we are worthless, but as an opportunity to purify and deepen the blessing that rests upon us. Physical, mental, or emotional pain lived under the blessing is experienced in ways radically different from physical, mental, or emotional pain lived under the curse. Even a small burden perceived as a sign of our worthlessness can lead us to deep depression. However, great and heavy burdens become light when they are lived in the light of the blessing. 
What seemed intolerable becomes a challenge. What seemed a reason for depression becomes a source of purification. What seemed punishment becomes a gentle pruning. What seemed rejection becomes a way to a deeper communion. And so the great task becomes that of allowing the blessing to touch us in our brokenness. What an incredible difference that this could make in our lives if we were willing and able to see our circumstances, even the brokenness, as a blessing, as an opportunity that God has given us to grow, to be made pure, to be pruned, to find a new level of communion with him. To truly be able to be grateful, not because of great circumstances, but because we trust a great God. Let's keep going. Verses 9 and 10. We see this roller coaster ride that David is on because here in these verses he goes back to questioning yet again. And what question word do you notice? Do you see twice in verse 9? It's the word why, right? Why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning? And the unwritten why there, why am I being oppressed by my enemy? This is such a natural response to challenging circumstances, isn't it? For us to ask the question, why? We're kind of asking God why. We're kind of asking the universe why. Sometimes we're asking ourselves why. And the truth is that we are not always and probably actually very rarely going to get to know the why. But the truth is that we don't need to know the why to be able to entrust ourselves to God. I mean, think about it. I don't completely understand how a car works, but yet I entrust my safety to my vehicle every single day. We need to stop putting our energies towards understanding why and instead use our energies to cling to God, or as David put it, to cling to God, my rock. Finally, now the culmination of the passage, this refrain from earlier My favorite part, verse 11, he says, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, and then underline this next phrase, For I will yet praise him. For I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. David circles back to this same question, essentially, that he asked earlier in verse 5, as he's inspecting himself. He's saying, Why, soul, are you so downcast? Why so disturbed? And after all of his processing, after all of his praying, after all of his lamenting, here's where David is left when he asks himself this question. He's left with putting his hope and his praise in God afresh. One commentary I read this week said, In the rehearsal of his sorrow, he finds, after all, no sufficient ground for being disquieted. Looked in the face, his fears were not so overwhelming as they seemed when they were shrouded in obscurity. The scholar essentially is saying that that it was the process of David being honest with God, of sharing his pain, his sorrow, of lamenting. The process of lament partnered with the process of remembering who God is that brought him through his sorrow, through his grief, that made him able to keep going, and even more, made him able to still be able to praise God despite his circumstances. David had discovered that gratitude and praise of God is not only possible when great circumstances are in place, but it's possible any time when we realize who God is and that he invites us to process all of life with him. 
Another translation of verse 11, words, kind of this money phrase of the verse this way. It says, yet I will praise him. Yet I will praise him. I'm downtrodden, yet I will praise him. I'm overwhelmed, yet I will praise him. I'm full of so much sorrow that I can't contain my tears, yet I will praise him. Whatever is happening in your life in this season, yet you can praise him. This psalm is a great example of being able to simultaneously lament and praise, of feeling crushed, but yet also at the same time feeling hopeful. And another great example of this is given to us by the prophet Jeremiah, who certainly witnessed his fair share of challenging circumstances as he tried to call his people back to God, yet continued to witness their hard-heartedness. Jeremiah dealt with so much challenge and sorrow that he was actually nicknamed the weeping prophet. How would you like to have that name? (laughs) One such instance of sorrow can be found in Lamentations chapter 3 as Jeremiah is sitting in the rubble of the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was this city that was once known as the crown jewel of the kingdom of Israel. But as a result of hundreds of years of unfaithfulness by his people, the Lord allowed the city of Jerusalem to be overthrown by King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. Jeremiah likely was there and witnessed all of this destruction, and he was one of only a few left alive after his enemies burned basically the entire city to the ground. And as he sat, he could see the charred remains of Solomon's temple. He could see the entire city in ruin. And this is the context in which he wrote four laments that are now known to us as the book of Lamentations. And as he wrote, certainly he wished that things were different. He wished that the people had heeded his repeated warning. And yet even in these terrible circumstances, Jeremiah found hope because he knew that even in the worst of circumstances that he served a God who was good even when life was not. And he offers these incredibly rich words that many have cl- have claimed in the millennia since as their own. He says this in verses 21 through 26 in chapter 3. He says, yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Such incredibly galvanizing words. We are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, not in good circumstances, but in him. And it is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord, to not rush, to not try to get out of our tough circumstances as quickly as possible, but instead to wait on the Lord as our Savior. Now that salvation might literally be from our tough circumstances. Maybe it'll just be from the sting of our tough circumstances. But as Jeremiah said, the Lord is our portion. He will give us all that we need in his person, in his presence. Jeremiah could say it is good in the middle of his sorrow and in the middle of the destruction because he truly believed it. 
Now, that didn't mean he didn't lament, right? That's what the whole book of Lamentations is. Jeremiah's lament, his passionate expression of sorrow to God. But here, even in one of the worst moments of his life, he could also express that God was good and he trusted that God would prove himself to be faithful. And so the question is, can you and I say that it is good even when life is not? Can we not just endure tough circumstances, but, but actually thank God for them and see them as blessings? We can when we realize that being grateful is not based on having great circumstances, but on having a relationship with a great God. You know, both of these stories, both David's and Jeremiah's, they end with hope and peace. Nothing had changed in the circumstances. All that had changed was their mindset. But both of the stories of these spiritual giants began with them being honest with God about what they were feeling, about how they were processing the challenging circumstances that they were walking in. You know, a few weeks ago, I was in the middle of feeling uh, one of those feeling bad for myself kind of moments and struggling to see hope in my circumstance. And as I was doing some dishes and listening to music, I heard a song called Lament that came on my phone, and it was one of those that just kind of absolutely hit me like a ton of bricks. And you'll notice, as we're going to listen to it, that in the verses and in the choruses, this expression of sorrow, this, this passionate feelings of pain, and yet just as David did and just as Jeremiah did, you'll notice in the bridge this remembrance of God's faithfulness, this anchored faith in who God is. In just a minute, we're going to bring down the lights, and I just want to invite you to Take a breath, (laughs) and in the next few minutes as you hear this song, just to let your guard down with God, to be honest with Him about how you're feeling, about what you're walking through. Like I said before, God can handle our lament. He can handle whatever feelings you can throw at Him. (laughs) And so as you listen to this lament, start to begin to think about your own lament. Go ahead, close your eyes. We're going to listen to the song Lament by Seacoast Worship. from this 
God, thank you for examples in your word and through this song of what it looks like to be able to lament honestly and passionately and yet at the same time still praise you. Whatever it is that we're going through right now, we express the challenge of it to you. We want to be honest with you about the struggle, about the pain. But we resolve to say what David did. Yet I will praise you. We do believe that you can use all things for our good Lord, and we know that we can trust you as you direct our lives. But meet us in our pain, meet us in the struggle, meet us in our grief. Because of your great love, we will not be consumed. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. <laughs>